Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So this week we're going to hear part two of the very disturbing story of the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes in Stockwell Tube Station on the 22nd of July 2005. This episode follows on from part one last week where uh, Adrian, who was one of the surveillance officers who was on the train, uh, when Jean-Charles was shot, uh, gave his account of what happened. So if you haven't listened to part one, I would strongly urge you to do so and then listen to this episode once you've done that. Okay, so let's get straight into the interview. So Adrian, um, can I just say thanks a million for uh, joining me again this week for part two of the Stockwell um, incidents uh, podcast. Um, thanks, thanks ever so much for last week. I think you you did an absolutely amazing job, um, and I know that the feedback has been absolutely superb. So well done, you. Thank you very much. Um, I was I was thinking about it over the previous few days, and I just wanted to reiterate. And I know you mentioned it at the start of our last conversation in that um, by no way is this a corporate uh, stance from the Metropolitan Police. This is my own personal perspective and recollection of, of events. Um, so I'm not here representing the Met on any level. Yeah. Uh, this is this is my version. So just to make yeah. that clear. Yeah, no. And likewise, this is, you know, my the whole I made that very clear when I wrote my book and when I do this podcast, everything I say and everything I said in the book, everything I say in the podcast are my own opinions. Um, I don't it doesn't reflect the, the views of my previous employers, the Metropolitan Police or the West Midlands Police. This is this is just what I think. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but um, where I'd like to go with this today is um, take up where we left off last week. Um, so last week, um, we followed the your account of the surveillance um, operation, which tragically ended with the death of um, Jean-Charles de Menezes and the, on the tube train at Stockwell on the um, 22nd of July, 2005. Um, and it was grueling, 
and gripping to listen to your account. Um, so if you're okay, what I'd like to do is just to hear uh, where we left off last time was you had um, made a sharp exit from the tube station on the basis that you know you needed to get away from there. Uh, the press were gathering. Um, you were obviously horribly shocked, um, I think, and probably, um, you know, from an operational point of view, you had to maintain the covert nature of who you are and what you were there. So there's all sorts of reasons why you needed to get away from Stockwell. So just, just describe to me what happened then when you actually left the tube station. Well, the, um, the initial moment was, you know, myself and my colleague that had been on the carriage made our way to our team leader's car um, because our vehicles were elsewhere and we were going to get a lift back to our base from him. And it was telling, you know, the, the lack of understanding of what had happened because when we got in the car, he was quite chipper and, you know, oh, what's, what's been happening? What happened with the follow? How did it all finish? Because he had no understanding of what had happened downstairs because that transmission hadn't come out yet, that there'd been a fatal shooting. So we explained it and he was literally, you know, shocked at what we were saying about how it had come to its conclusion, uh, which, you know, was, was incredible, really, bearing in mind everything that was going on downstairs. Right. So just, just for clarity... Uh, this is this is you and your colleague who had had literally put him into a sort of almost like a rugby tackle embrace um, whilst he was being shot. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. There were there were other people in and around the station, but they went back to their own vehicles. But because of the nature of how the follow had taken place, uh, my colleague and I that were actually on the carriage, and, and yes, my colleague that had um, had the uh, the coming together with John Charles. Uh, made our way out and were picked up by the team leader right. just so we could basically get back to our base. Um, right. Just just incredible that, you know, there was this uh, lack of uh, updates going on as to what had taken place down there, even with, you know, people milling around, uniform presence was quite heavy by that stage. Right. So he actually uh, dropped my colleague back at his vehicle and uh, we then made our way back to the base. And the traffic was absolute chaos. And I remember my colleague having to make progress through the traffic, you know, in a driving style that probably wasn't befitting someone that had just been involved in such a traumatic incident. And yeah. when, we, when we arrived back at our base, I remember getting out of the car and going towards the main entrance of the, uh, uh, the location. And my knees just went from under me. And I, I remember having a bit of a wobble. And I, I take that to be an adrenaline dump of sorts where, you know, the the um, the way I've been feeling around, you know, trying to keep it together during post incident, obviously yeah. just just um, came out. And I remember a, a, a colleague uh, at that time scooping me up and taking me inside and was like, you know, checking on my welfare at that early stage. But I think still the majority of people didn't have any concept of the 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 type of incident that had happened down there, and and obviously uh, what the scene must have been like. Yeah. So um, without um, kind of being insensitive to, there's no easy way to ask this question, but 
effectively you and your colleague were uh i suppose kind of walking crime scenes really and i don't mean crime scenes in that a crime had been committed because that went through all of the legal processes and was fine not to have been the case but in terms of your clothing any sort of forensic material etc uh, was that something that you were considering at that point i think at that point I, I probably wasn't thinking about the evidential elements of my closeness to John Charles at the time. Um, my, my colleague well may have been, but I, I don't think we ever discussed it. It was more of a case of let's move ourselves away from the scene, go back to our base, and then a formal process can commence, as you would expect. Mm. And as part of that process, there would be an understanding that, yes, uh, we would then go through an amount of detail about uh, statement taking, debrief the, the surveillance log and anything else that comes along with the evidential chain of that. And um, that actually happened. I was going to move on to that in a moment. Yeah, yeah, sure. I didn't want to get ahead of myself. Before that. And it's, it's very tricky for this, this second part because yes. like the first, there's lots of things happening at the same time and it's very difficult to talk through it all but we'll, we'll try and work our way through it but the first thing that happened was we we went back to the surveillance headquarters the firearms officers went back to their headquarters um, and you've got to remember that they are the experts in in terms of dealing with post-incident matters of this nature mm. not not so much uh, critical shot type uh, shootings but shootings in general or anything to do with firearms they are they are the 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 national lead maybe even the world lead on that kind of debriefing process because their federation reps are so well versed in it and so professional in it mm. um, but but we split we went to our base they went to theirs and you know first recollections of walking into the base there were lots of people coming up and saying are you okay you know the, the traditional welfare questions but a lot of people saying you know great job you know you've done really well um because in their mindset, this is a counter-terrorism organisation on a mm. counter-terrorism operation. And at that point, there's no suggestion that this is a completely innocent person. Um, most people in that headquarters, along with the team, myself, my colleague, are of the impression that it's not confirmed, but we, you know, we suspect that this is one of the failed bombers from the day before. Um, and if not, there were some things that right. went on that looked like he could be associated with them, uh, come from the address, etc. So there was, there was almost this congratulations, if you will, that mm -hmm. we'd done a good job. And I remember senior managers, you know, almost patting you on the back mm -hmm. uh, and making, tr obviously trying to make you feel good in a bad situation because, as we as we all well know regardless of who it was, it's a terrible situation to be in for, for all concerned. Mm -hmm. But it was it was a very strange feeling because obviously my colleague and I uh, were still in a, a state of shock to a degree, but knowing now that, you know, things are going to change and <clears throat> some people going about their day-to-day -day business. And the, the team dynamics were quite interesting as well because what you have, as you well know, with, with a surveillance team with good numbers on it, there are people, well, firstly, there are people on that team that weren't even on that day. So that's a separate group of people. Yeah. We've then got members of staff who were on the surveillance follow, but were not 
in the underground station. We've got some members of staff that were in the underground station, perhaps on the escalators ticket office. And then we've got myself and my colleague uh, and a couple of others that were in close proximity at the time of the shooting. So within the team, there is a dynamic where people have got different, uh, not status, but different uh, roles within the operation that's just taken place. And I think there was a little bit of confusion as to what do we do? You know, do we do we treat this as surveillance and we debrief the log and we'll stay at the surveillance headquarters or should we go to the firearms uh, headquarters because we are now part of a firearm shooting incident and there was a little bit of a fallout on the team because i think um certainly i mean it, it is my understanding that there wasn't much of a post-incident procedure process in place at special branch to the mm. degree that it deserved yeah um it was very much you know um work it out as, as these things happen. Whereas, yeah. you know, a lot yeah. of other departments, certainly now anyway, you know, moving on into the future, it yeah. is a, a tried and tested method, yeah. rehearsed, drilled, and everyone knows what their yeah. roles are and how so it just, plays so out. Just for, just for those who are listening to this, who, who don't really understand how this works, the, the post-incident procedure PIP process is, is uh, triggered. No, that's a terrible, I didn't mean to use that. It's a terrible word to use. Uh, uh, the, the PIP process is invoked, shall we use that as a slightly more appropriate term, is invoked um, when uh, after a shooting um, or after any significant incident results in um, either death or serious injury to a police officer or a member of the public. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit there and pretend I'm an expert on the PIP process because I'm not, but it is a, as you say, it's a tried and tested process where an independent, someone, someone within the force will be the on-call PIP manager who will be called in to deal as an independent person in that process. And there's a very sort of strict um, set of procedures that need to be followed. So I just thought I'd clarify. Yeah, no, and thank you for doing that. And you're right. In, in Back then at that time, it was a case of you would give an account of what's happened and then... Um, measures will be put in place as to moving forward statements, given an account of what happened. It's it's changed significantly now, and probably as a result of Stockwell, uh, a lot of those have come about. But at the same time, the IPCC, which was a new organisation at that time, were involved in the actual post-incident procedure process. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of <clears throat> um, forces pulling in different directions as to how this was going to, move forward and ultimately my colleague and I that had been downstairs in close proximity certainly him where he had been um, as in in contact with John Charles felt that the right thing to do was go to the firearms headquarters because they had the best process in place and that's that's what happened it caused a bit of a rift but we worked through it and ultimately we all ended up going to the firearms headquarters where the debriefing process commenced and that in itself was a, a strange process because mm. you said about evidence, you know, being a, a walking evidence. Yeah, you know, I, used lots, to lots I used the expression crime scene. That was a clumsy, yes. a clumsy expression. But we tend to, let's, let's say it was a forensic scene. You were, yes, you were and, effectively and, a forensic scene. And there was a lot of valuable information to be gained there. So it was a strange um, situation where, you know, I don't think that was in the forefront of people's minds, but that, that in itself explains, you know, that how 
how lacking maybe the uh, post-incident process was at that time. And I remember sitting there with uh, my colleague and we, we went in one room separate from all the firearms guys. And, you know, the, the mood was quite sombre uh, and low. Uh, we, we knew there was a, um, a deceased male. Uh, we were keeping our powder dry in terms of saying anything, even to other members of the team, other than to sort of give them a basic outline as to what happened, because that is the correct process to go through <clears throat> to ensure transparency at the right time under the supervision of, of others. So we were, we were being very careful about disclosing, you know, what we had seen, felt, heard it, all those kind of things, because we knew it had to go through a, a professional debriefing process. But I do remember sitting there um, still feeling very shocked as to what had happened. And very soon after, called to a different room to uh, be met by some uh, professional standards officers from the internal Metropolitan Police Professional Standards Department who seized my firearm, ev evidenced, exhibited my firearm. And then I was basically um, given a choice as to whether I wanted to put on a white uh, suit and hand over all my clothes and have them seized or stay in those clothes until such time as other clothes could be brought to me, uh, which, which wasn't a great choice to be made, to be mm. honest, because, you know, as we discussed in part one, there was a human matter mm. on myself and my colleague. Uh, and it, and it just felt, it felt quite uncomfortable. I'm probably being kind. It was, it was horrendous. It was yeah, a nasty no. position to be in, to sit there <clears throat> having been through it and still, wearing it yeah I, um i mean I, I i was kind of i was trying to get to, to that point um and it's such a night i didn't really want to ask you that question so brutally but uh, as you as you've as you've sort of stated that then yeah that's kind of what i was getting at that I well the reason we, i'm reluctant yeah. is obviously the family element to it for you know john charles de menezes and it's, it's very uncomfortable to talk like that uh, but they would be aware of all this from the coroner's inquest anyway uh, but but uh, it, it, it was a horrendous moment and it stuck with me forever about you know this this choice of do i want to sit in a a suit that are normally reserved for prisoners and prisoners of a certain type and style as as i'm sure you, you appreciate yeah. and so we'll yeah rap rapists and murderers generally isn't it yeah because the you know the the evidence of dna retrieval all that kind of thing is is key or stay there sitting in it and it's it, um it was awful but you know fortunately for both of us because of the way we were working at that time you know short notice national deployments that sort of thing i think we both had go bags in our cars of spare kit and that was retrieved and recovered. And that then was brought to us at the firearms base. We subsequently changed and all the clothing was seized at that time. Right. So we worked our way through it. Um, you know, and, it, and we I, then, can I just can I just ask, what was the demeanor of the uh, professional standard staff who were dealing with you? Were you happy with the way that they were dealing <clears> with you? Was it were they dealing with you in a sensitive way or was it was it quite sort of um you know, kind of cold and clinical, so to speak? I think they were trying to keep it cold and clinical uh, and, and professional, as you would expect. They they asked me a couple of questions that I wasn't particularly happy with. 
that I thought were inappropriate at that time around, you know, the amount of rounds that have been fired. Uh, and and I, I've always taken that to be trying to put me at ease, you know, just general chit chat rather than anything sinister. Um, but, you know, it's uh, what, what do you say to someone who is a colleague, for want of a better description, but you're having to go through that process with? And at, at that time, I, I didn't feel like a suspect in any kind of investigation. I, I mm. felt like a witness mm. to an unfortunate incident. Yeah. Uh, but the way we were being treated didn't actually feel like that. It felt very early on that we were being looked at for wrongdoing. Mm. And that, that was a bit of a surprise, bearing in mind how short a time I'd been on the department and now suddenly involved in something so serious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you hear so many different experiences of people at the hands of professional standards. And I suppose, I suppose my general i've i've been very fortunate i was very fortunate i was never investigated for anything really of any significance what you know while i was a serving officer which i was very blessed and grateful for but in the same way that you get fantastic police officers mediocre police officers and terrible police officers you get fantastic professional standard staff and and everything in between uh, and you get some shockers shocking dreadful people so it, it can be sometimes a bit of luck of the yeah i mean i i i can't sit here and, and whinge about it because they had a process to follow you know mm. i wasn't i wasn't happy about it but i i get it um i i'm, I'm gonna jump ahead myself for a quick second you know yeah, i yeah. talked about the ipcc that was a different set of circumstances because there were some things with the ipcc that that were harsh and unfair mm. and I remember, I am jumping ahead. I, I will come back, I assure you. But So just for clarity, for those listening, the IPCC was the Independent Police Complaints Commission, which has now been, the name's been changed, the organisation's the same. It's now the Independent Office of Police Complaints. So just to clarify that. I think this may well have been one of their first, if not the first, investigations. Uh, and... It, it was a, obviously because it was so well documented and, and everything like that, it was, it was high profile. But at one point, as, as we've discussed, I, I was married a few days before the actual shooting. A couple of weeks after we went on our honeymoon and um, we, we were on a cruise going around the Med. Oh and we, pulled, we, we, we came into one of, the, uh, one of the ports, grabbed a newspaper and... On, on the front few pages of the newspaper were personal details of some officers involved, myself, my colleague that had been on the carriage embraced with John Charles because a member of the IPCC staff had felt <clears throat> it acceptable to release our details to the media because oh, of it was in the public interest to do so. And, and it was so, so shocking to us you know my, I remember my poor wife picking up the paper thinking oh dear yeah as if it wasn't bad enough and finally escaped and now now look at what's happened oh. and and my colleague even worse you know even even more so back at home and there was there was moments where because of that incident media attention at, at the home addresses mm. constantly looking over your shoulder thinking you know am, am I being mm. chased by the media or 
a, a threat of some yeah, sort yeah, yeah, yeah. because of the type of officers we were. Hmm. Uh, and, and so the IPCC, I've, I felt, I mean, we may talk about them later. I, I didn't feel like they were particularly professional hmm. throughout the whole process. Well, I'm horrified, frankly, what you've just said there, because... I've never, I wasn't aware of that, Adrian. I didn't realise that your personal details and details of others had been disclosed in the in the media. Um, you know, on all sorts of levels, that that is shocking. The fact that you're members of a covert, um, the media like to use the word undercover, don't they, for surveillance? They do, yeah. You're not, you're not undercover. You're a covert unit, um, and it's covert for a reason. And you're doing national security work. Um, and you're also involved in a incident which is um, shocking and uh, appallingly traumatic for anyone involved in it. Um, well, it, so, it was, yeah. you know, it's career threatening, but worse than that, it's it's it put at risk our families and our children, mm. um, and that that was a, of concern. And I know my colleague had some difficult times around that. And, uh, you know, we, we ended up with security features in our houses at the time. And again, it just it just makes you no know, it's, it's been bad enough already. How much worse is it going to get? But I think that was probably just the start of it, to be honest. And I'm sure we'll come on to more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if I if I if I go back then to the debrief process, we, we carried out a debrief of sorts. Uh, back at the firearms base. And then we were introduced to legal representation who we had an initial consultation with. <clears throat> and then basically it was a case of, I mean, it was late. We, we, we were provided food, but we weren't allowed access to it because of the debriefing process. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking a, a short, concise debrief. This wasn't a long drawn out. Right. Let's go through everything. This is a quick scrum down of you know what's happened and where we're going from here on in when you say you were introduced to legal representation what do you mean by that so as with all you know, police involved shootings clearly there will be an element of uh, investigation and as a result the police federation become involved to assist the officer and legal representation as in uh, a solicitor mm. is brought in to offer advice mainly just so that the process is is kept as it should mm -hmm. rather than individual cops going off and, and doing what they like around statement writing and uh, what happens with the process yeah so what sort of time of day are we talking about here what time is it now roughly so this is uh, this had gone on into the earlier it it by the time we got back to the firearms headquarters we're into the afternoon early evening and then throughout the evening uh the the clothing um talking about the process from here on in what's likely to happen what was to be expected mm. then into the evening for the solicitors mm. at some point throughout that process i was later made aware that uh, mom dick had arrived uh at the premises to just speak to everyone that was at the time I was having my clothing see so I, I didn't have the opportunity to speak to her uh, not not that I would have had anything to say obviously mm -hmm. at that time um, but she so just, showed a presence so just out of curiosity what was your understanding that she had come along uh, in her own right as a significant witness 
also to be debriefed or was she there as a sort of um uh, you know from a welfare professional welfare point of view it's my understanding that she had made her way there in in order to offer support to the officers that have been involved and to outline the fact that she would um be obviously participating in in any subsequent investigation but it was generally about support i, I don't she wasn't involved in any kind of debriefing process at, at that at that headquarters mm. it was a case of I, th- I think she did uh the right thing in effect and, and come and checked on her staff right okay <clears throat> so so, um, what's her, so by this time i would imagine you're starting to feel pretty exhausted because it's probably been a you started you had an early start didn't you well you know what it's like when when there's stuff going on you 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 switch on and you you know you you you, you go with it and you know your body's working overtime because even fatigue you know you push on the extra mile because you know stuff's got to get done it's no different to any kind of long-term deployment you you're mm-hmm. going to work through it and do what mm-hmm. needs doing it's no different if you're writing up notes from having arrested a drink driver on a on a Saturday night going into an, an early turn you know you mm-hmm. need to get mm-hmm. things done and processed yeah. and that's what we were doing but extremely fatiguing extremely mm-hmm. tiring because of the mental pressure yeah yeah trying to trying to think about you know what's going on and don't forget let's not forget at this point we have no idea that he is an innocent member of the public yeah so we're doing things you know in, in a professional way as you would expect and yeah, yeah. i know there were a lot of uh, misnomers around you know very early that police were coercing and and trying to cover up what had happened mm. and it and it simply wasn't the case we had met with uh, the firearms officers and we had had a discussion you know mainly around welfare uh, mm. you know and, and how are you and all this sort of bear in mind we'd never met before the actual shooting yeah so it was a very strange scenario did, did you have an opportunity to at that point to actually speak to the officers who sort of you know made the fatal shot so to speak did you and your colleague actually have an opportunity to, to, to speak to them just from the point of view of given the the craziness of what had just happened um you know what what was that like when you actually were able to well it's it's an obvious yes yes we were we were introduced to the whole team actually and uh I remember, I remember speaking to the guys, and and like uh, Mom Dick, unfortunately, I ne- never saw her, but like Mom Dick, they were very keen to check on our welfare, which you know stays with me that that they, having been the ones very you know involved and and now having to answer lots of detailed questions, you know they were keen to check on our welfare and to make sure we were okay, and I, I remember almost. Well, not almost. I remember thanking them for their professionalism, you know, because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they, they clearly had direction of, of different things to us, bearing in mind we've talked mm-hmm. about the identification and the lack of it. Um, thinking, you know, they, they have potentially uh, saved me from something happening mm. of a safety nature. And, you know, and, you know yeah. I, 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 I remember being quite humbled by their professionalism yeah, yeah. Around what had happened. Yeah. So it's it's kind of probably worth just um, going in, going back into that whole issue around identification, because you described in great detail, didn't you, in in the first in part one of our in, of our chat, that um, 
a positive identification was never actually made. But but then when you saw the firearms officers coming steaming in in that way, you obviously didn't know what else might have been said or what other information there may now be available, etc. So it's this very strange scenario now, isn't it, where where you've got some people in your own base, your surveillance base, sort of kind of saying, patting you in the back, saying, well done, you know, uh, amazing job. Um, you've probably been very bemused by the whole thing and confused about everything. Uh, and the firearms officers themselves, uh, you know, they've obviously been told what they've been told and you don't know what that is yet, I suppose. So, yeah, it's a very, oh my God, it's a very strange, um, messy situation, isn't it? It's it's um, sitting here now. It's it's unbearable to think back and and understand how it was so messy and misconstrued. And and I, to clarify what you said, <clears throat> there was at no point was there positive identification from the surveillance team, mm. rather than a positive identification because the firearms officers are pretty adamant that they were given one. The tricky bit has been no one's ever been accountable to where that decision came from other than um, miscommunication, misunderstanding, inference, rather than me saying to you, that is a positive idea of that person there. And mm. and I think that's the difficulty, you know, in those days of working with, in interoperating with different units and departments. And this is where... <clears throat> The modern era is completely different from that. You know, I won't, I won't go into the tactics, what happens now, yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, these there are fail-safes almost in place yeah. to prevent that happening. Yeah. But at that time, you know, I... Obviously well, I can, I, I, can, I, can, I can describe some of that given the fact that I used to run the CT operations rooms. And so, for example, anyone who comes into a CT operations room now in that type of scenario needs to sign themselves in, sign themselves out. You only go in there if you've got a specific identified role, which is a key role identified as part of that training and sort of capability. Um, as soon as any lethal force is anticipated, every single thing in that room is, is audio recorded and uh, very often video recorded. Everyone is wearing, any, everyone who's in those key roles is wearing like a lapel mic so that their individual conversations are audio recorded um, and and obviously all of the documentation um, is is can never go away it's all put into software systems yeah. that can never be deleted never be altered um, so there's multiple fail safes now um, but and but, likewise communications are usually recorded uh, if not always recorded uh, the operators on the ground um, their working practices between different departments is greatly improved from you know working in silos on the ground yeah. uh, up, up until that point of handover so it, it is well to part but i know there will be people out there still to this day that are adamant there was a positive identification my position is and, and with all the evidence available to me uh, because it was disclosed for a reason we'll come on to it, it just didn't happen and it's it's really unfortunate because like you say at the debrief We've got firearms officers who are believing they have uh, shot 
a failed suicide bomber based on a positive identification. Mm. We've got surveillance officers of the of the understanding that a man has been shot. There is a real good possibility that he is a failed suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it, it's a real difficult situation to be in because as far as you are aware, you have done your job mm-hmm. to the best of your ability and members of the public are safe. There has been a fatality, clearly bad, but members of the public are safe. All the officers mm-hmm. are safe and, and no terrorist activity has taken place. Um, and that, that obviously shapes how you feel about the debrief and, and such like. But it, but it didn't negate uh, personal feelings about mm-hmm. having been involved in that incident. So, yes, it was late. We'd, we'd met our legal team going into the, the hours of darkness. And then it was a case of, right, you, you're now going to go home and we'll come back in tomorrow to start statement taking and that's what you do you have your rest period and then you'll come back in and, and that's what happened I, I drove home uh parked the car wife was in bed asleep and, I, and I, I remember getting into bed and i i think i had a little moment to myself thinking wow and and was quite upset tearful yeah because i still had the scene very much in my head and, mm-hmm. and could see it and was mm-hmm. quite upset about the, the devastation that had taken place and the image of this guy, failed yeah. terrorist or not, uh, being shot and my colleague being close to death. Mm-hmm. So I, I was quite upset and I, my wife was asleep. Um, I was going to ask, I, did you, did you, did you wake her up? Did you, did you, did you talk about this before? Or did you just kind of let her? Let her no, let I'd, her I'd made a phone. I'd made a phone call whilst we were at the debrief and said, "Look, you know, I'm I'm going to be in here for a few hours, yeah, and going to be embroiled in some ongoing stuff." And I remember colleagues of mine that I'd worked with on the TSG were doing welfare checks with her at home because we were friends socially, um, which was was excellent. And and I remember uh, getting home. She was asleep. I think it was just because it was so late. She mm. she'd gone to sleep. And I laid there pretty much on the opposite side of the bed, having a little cry to myself um, and, and didn't wake her up. And the next morning I was up and gone and, and away back into work to get on with the statements. And, right. and in some ways, that's, that's, I guess, what you do. You, you try and protect and shield mm. your loved ones from, from things like that. Mm. And I think it was quite some time after that she, she found out about that. Uh, and, yeah, I... I what, what can you say? It was a, it was that adrenaline moment again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't imagine it was the best night's sleep you've ever had in your life, was it? Um, no. Yeah. No, no, I know. I mean, I've never been in your situation, Adrian, ever. But I certainly can think of many times whenever I would get into bed, having dealt with the most horrific, you know, um, you know, like a dreadful. Uh, murder scene or uh, dead children i was you know a child abuse invest, uh, detective inspector for quite a while and dealt with a lot of dead kids in that time and then it's very strange you know when you go home and you get into bed or you see your own you go home and you see your own kids and uh yeah anyway it's not about me I, I, about I have no doubt there are a lot of emergency services personnel whether that be fire ambulance police that spend a considerable amount of time in the shower before they get into bed with their loved ones because they feel like they need to cleanse mm. some of the day's work before they then go back into their normal lives. 
uh, unfortunately. Um, but I think we, we accept that and we, we take that as part of the job. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so, so you get up the next day and, uh, and then the sort of, <clears throat> does the sort of more formal debrief process start then, or are you very much about coming in and yeah, so doing your, doing your just, statements? Well, we, we were heading into the surveillance headquarters again the next day. And of course, the media, media is reporting pretty much round the clock by this stage because, you know, not only have we had the 77217, we've now got a fatal shooting and the media was, you know, going for it, you know, reporting wise, I'm, I'm talking about. So it was very difficult to, to not listen to any of that. And I remember not, you know, I didn't have the radio on or anything like that because it was all relatively new to me. I wanted to come at it, you know, from that straight back position. And I remember getting to the surveillance headquarters and there, there was a diff- different atmosphere. There was a different vibe. And you could tell something wasn't right. And I think at the end of the day at, at um, the firearms base, you know, that we were, we were desperately pressing for an identification of which, which one of the bombers is it? Is it, the, is it this one? You know, the one we think it is. And it, and it never came, but it, because of everything else that was going on, it, it didn't really become an issue for me personally. But the next day when I went in and was chatting to my colleagues who had been downstairs with me, we were taken into a room with the solicitor hmm. and he, he broke the news to us that it was a, an innocent man, John Charles de Menezes. Hmm. And, and we were devastated, as you can imagine. You know, this this was news that we didn't expect. Mm. I, I don't think I believed it when he said it, because in my mind, I couldn't understand how that would have happened. Bearing in mind, we've followed someone from the address directly linked to a failed suicide bomber, not lost him, been downstairs, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. So it was, a, it was a real shocker to be told that. Yeah. And the whole time he's telling it, and I, my mind's obviously thinking, how's that happened? The, the whole time he's talking about the process now and what we can expect to happen. And I just don't think I took it in, to be honest. I think I was a bit naive around that front as to what was going to come over the next weeks, months, years, decade or so yeah. of, of things that were going to then kick into place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as a result of that, we then once again relocated to the firearms base and began our statement writing and um my colleague and i wrote our statements uh in the same room without any discussion we we wrote our statements and i remember writing one very long statement i i didn't leave any stone unturned i wanted to get down everything that had happened yeah um uh and you know, make it clear uh, with with a complete open and transparency around what the involvement was, yeah. And that's that's what took place. And then from there on in, it was a case of you know this is this is now the process. And we did our statements. It wasn't a particularly long day. And then back home again, mm. and and everyone else did the same. Yeah, yeah. And and had you had much of an opportunity to actually sort of you know, kind of decompress, for want of a better word, decompress your shared experience with your colleague who you were on the train with? Did you had an opportunity for you to sit down and talk it through at any point? We, we hadn't talked about the actual 
dynamics or evidence-related aspects of it. We, we had sat down and were constantly saying, are you okay, mate? Are you okay? And, you know, and, and, and that, bearing in mind, you've got to remember, I'd, I'd hardly spoken to this guy because we were new on the team. And I'm, I'm a newbie. He's an old sweat. And, mm. you know, you, you wait to get invited to the advanced driver's table at, at refreshment yeah. break. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's one thing putting them up on a pedestal because they're the gurus. And then all of a sudden we're now checking on each other's welfare. And I felt really weird because if it was going to happen, surely it would have been some more experienced guys at the forefront of it. Not, mm. not the new boy. Yeah. Um, and, and I felt out of place maybe. And, you know, he, he was continually and has always said, you know, you've done a great job. You've done what you were trained to do. You've been professional. You've been open and honest, but it, it felt very strange to be there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as yeah, I was. But do you not think, do you not think that's so much of policing is like that? And I say to people, you know, I used to say, I used to give, uh, little pep talks to uh, young officers who were just starting out or maybe still doing their training. Um, and I'd say to them, you've got to get your head around the fact that on your very first day in uniform, you could go to an incident that could be on the front pages of every newspaper in the country. It's not likely to happen, but it's possible. You know, you could go to the most horrific, one of the most horrific things that you will ever deal with on your very first day or in your very first week. So just get your head around that because it could happen. You know, it's, it's really telling that you pick up on that because as you well know, you know, I, I deliver a presentation on the shoot and in, in more detail, you know, with, with uh, visual aids and stuff like that. But one of the, the things I try and leave the audience with is exactly that point. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's, Obviously, it's going to be rare to be this kind of incident, but a fatal car accident, a domestic where someone's been murdered, these things can happen. And when you get up in the morning, again, this is all emergency services. Mm. You get up in the morning, you don't know what you're going to do that day. And that, mm. that is the buzz of it. Don't get me wrong. But it's also mm. a very tricky scenario when people aren't mentally and physically prepared for those. So I, yeah. I've, I've done some interesting work with um overseas law enforcement mainly in america where they come at it from a different perspective so their approach is very similar to what you've said it's very much for new recruits guys and girls you will at some point be involved in a traumatic incident so we're now going to prep you for that traumatic incident mm. in in the uk it's very much the case of we wait until that traumatic incident happens mm. and then we tell you how to deal with it yeah and the horse has bolted and it's, it's a, it's a bit of, a, and, I, and I love their concept. I mean, that's more than military as well. Yeah. And it's a, it's an interesting concept because the way the world is now, yes, clearly you are going to get involved in stuff, not necessarily at this level, but there is mm. going to be traumatic events yeah. and you're potentially going to be that person on the front page of the newspaper that's been involved in X, Y, and Z. And it's a real grounder to newbies that come yeah, in. Yeah, yeah definitely so um sorry we digress no, so no, it's fine no it's all it's all really really important and relevant stuff um so in terms of uh you you do all your statements and um and you've been given you've been given this shocking news that an innocent man has been shot um 
So take take it take it from there. Then I mean, I yeah. So even... I think I think it was very clear from the onset that there were different elements that were going to be probed, tested within the organisation. I you had a firearms element, you had a surveillance covert asset element, you had operational command management senior leadership, mm. <clears throat> and each one had legal representation in their own right. Mm-hmm. from different companies each had their own responsibilities and things that they would need to account for mm-hmm. and our stance was very much the case of we will make our statements by nature of what special branch are and historically have been we will keep our powder dry and we will rate, wait for the proper due process to then um, outline our involvement and give an account of what we have done Mm -hmm. and justify the reasons behind it when the right time comes and we felt like we were a bit of an unheard voice within the surveillance command because now everyone knew that you know john charles was completely innocent and the media were you know paying for blood almost weren't they and there was this Mm. and and rightly so there had to be an accountability issue uh for how this thing had gone so wrong but our stance was you know we're not going to get embroiled in that we're not going to be making statements to the press and you know Mm. we we don't want the met press office speaking on our behalf we very much want to keep the lawful legal due process Mm -hmm. as it should be and i think I, i don't think the mps the met police um wanted to go along that line they, they wanted to put out statements and, and such like and it and it felt like because we weren't speaking we were being blamed right and it was almost when like you say, when, you say, when you say we do you mean surveillance team surveillance yeah it felt very much like the 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 uh, the issue around wrongdoing was going to rest at our door hmm. and that was that was really uncomfortable because in my what, opinion just just out of curiosity what 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 who who was making you feel that way because that's an because if you think that through um was it was there an inference was there i don't want to put words in your mouth but was there an inference that you had somehow directed the firearms officers to shoot him or what what why what who who or why were you made to feel that way <clears throat> it was it was more the case that there were statements appearing in the media that were suggesting a misidentification or an identification had been made and it was it was incorrect mm. uh, along the lines we've discussed you know this right. this whole yeah. thing about who identified yeah. him and, yeah, and right. we were sitting there quite quietly saying that well that that didn't happen and and the other misnomers around as we discussed in part one that the, the mm. members of the public who had given witness statements suggesting that the person we were f- following john charles had run into the ticket office been challenged by police vaulted the barriers and all this kind of misrepresentation which which made it look like the surveillance officers had a monumental fuck up yeah yeah uh and you know we we knew that simply wasn't the case we'd done our jobs we'd taken someone from a to b and we were still doing so on our way to c uh so i i felt and i'm sure my colleagues would agree that 
it was as bad to have reporting along those lines from wherever source that came from. And I believe somewhere from the organization, but mm. equally nobody from the organization was standing up at senior level and saying to the media, there is going to be a process. Mm. We've got nothing to say, you know, no comment yeah, instead yeah. of little bits of drip feeding things, drip feeding things that were sort of trying to steer it a certain way. It, it almost I mean, we know the organisation has a blame culture anyway. Mm. You know, you know that. Everyone knows that. Yeah. Um, and, and the ship will generally roll downhill. We all know that. Yeah. Um, but this felt very, very um, underhand, that it was being right. steered a certain way. As we've, got, we've got an outer here. We've yeah. got an easy-to-blame group of people for getting the ID wrong. Right. And because we weren't saying anything... Yeah, and not yeah. defending ourselves Silence. because that was the legal process. It's like Silence it was, was, being it was a done deal. Guilt. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I, and yeah. I think the media did pick up on that. And I think yeah. that's the story they ran with that it was yeah. a mis-ID, it was a a, a, a wrong ID. Mm. You know, none of us were going to phone up a, yeah. a mate who was a reporter and say this is all wrong. And I and I think it's probably also worth um, reminding ourselves that we've still got active terrorists on the loose. Um, <laughs> yeah who were the failed 21st July suicide bombers. And there's also simultaneous to all of this happening, a massive national manhunt going on to track them down, isn't there? You just, you just couldn't make it up, could you? It's, uh, you know, there were, I mean, we, fortunately we had plenty of teams and other teams were being drafted in that carried on with that work. And although the team had been through this incident, there wasn't really that much time off we didn't we didn't have any um what's the word uh welfare break uh to go away and have a few days off sort of mm. thing it wasn't it wasn't a case of right we've been involved in this terrible incident it's going to go for its process go and have some compassionate leave is the word i was think, thinking yeah. of yeah. very quickly we were back out on the streets uh with you know teams being pulled together of which we were part of still looking for those so, so you went so within within kind of 24 hours of this incident you are actually back out on the streets on a surveillance team carrying I, on. I think it was about 48 but that was probably more shift pattern than anything else but it was a case right. of you know we still need people out there and and yes we've got a process to go through that will happen in due course but alongside that you've got a job to do and no one ever said right right lads and lasses Go and have go and have some downtime. Clear your head. We'll work through it. We'll get you some counselling sorted out, and then you can come back to work. It was get your, get your comms on, get your kit together, and, and let's go and find the others and and associates that had spread out from then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and and I, I assume the same to, to, it goes to be said for your colleague who you're on the train with. He was back out again, also operational. Yes, and uh, yes, and looking back now and in recent years it's you know, no way should that have happened i mean it was bad enough that we'd driven our own cars back to the surveillance space let alone then be back out on I, I i honestly can't remember if they were armed ops or not at the time so I, I can't say either way but if we were that would have been madness too but to be working behind further potential terrorists when you still got that hanging over you is, is, is anyone a, just to, I'm, I'm not saying I don't, I'm, I'm not pointing the finger on this question it's just I'm just curious Ray did anyone at any point turn around to you and say you know what you've been through some shit in the last 48 hours 
if you want to if you want to just duck out of this one and stay in the office and do some admin or whatever um that's okay or was it just were you even given that option now it, it would be wrong of me to say no one ever said that because I, i'm sure they did and i do remember certain managers being being very good around that and, and offering that but then what you've then got is the case where i mean i i don't know how you see it from different stances but my thought process from that early stage where is someone's lost their life here we need to get our shit together and go and get the right people as does everyone else everyone knew that yeah Uh, so it's a case of you're not gonna relinquish your duty by having a few days off or a bit of time off you're gonna get your ass back out there and go and work with the team and i think um i was i was more reluctant i i was i think holding back and, and not pushing myself forward as I should be as a new boy and, and, and being the best events operative in the world. But I remember my colleague, and I said about him in the last episode about his professionalism, he, he was straight back on it. And, you know, internally, I think we were dealing with some heavy duty trauma. Yeah. And just putting on our surveillance mm-hmm. uniform well, yeah. of sorts and getting on with it. But but As again, but like again, I go back to that point, Adrian. That isn't that what cops do all the time, and I think they get precious little recognition for it. It's like we send people in to deal with the most fucking awful things, and um, and you have to park that. You have to park that um, trauma because it's not going to go away, though. It will. It will definitely not go away. But you. But you do have to. Um, yeah, I mean, if you've got if you've had a child murder or something like that, and you go out to the scene and you deal with it, and then you the next morning you know you're going to go to that post mortem, um, and then you've got it, you know you're going to be dealing with the grieving family, all that stuff. So, so yeah, it's, I mean, it says well, it's, it's, so I, much I mean, about you. It's not it's not being vainglorious either, is it? It is that is your that is what you've joined up to do. You're you're aware of the the implications of taking on that role and responsibility, um, and it's what we do and it's it's not about getting a pat on the back at the end of the day is it it's about fulfillment in in your life that you actually make a meaningful change and and it all sounds a bit dramatic that but that is the case and i I remember one of the i remember one of the firearms supervisors at, at one of the courts processes that we went through saying about you know at a time when everyone else was running from danger and trying to escape and flee police officers were running towards danger and going to confront whatever lay ahead and yeah. uh, you know firearms officers and surveillance officers putting them in a place of, of of danger and yeah unfortunately on this one we've got to deal with the unfortunate shooting of an innocent man but mm. that is what cops do as do other emergency services mm. uh, on a daily basis multiple times a day they put themselves in harm's way and it's it's not bigging it up it's mm. a fact um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. members of the public expect us to do it, uh, and, and we do it willingly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so obviously, you, you go back out onto the operational side of things, um, and uh, we know, sort of, you know, through the history of the incident, that the perpetrators are identified eventually and uh, detained. Um, and one of whom actually ended up going to Birmingham. Uh, where I was working at the time, and he he was actually uh, taken out by farms officers in in Birmingham, 
by another mate of mine, actually, who <laughs> seemed to have been all over this in terms of my associations. But uh, yeah, ex- <laughs> we got the common link here. Yeah, we? an ex colleague of mine actually tasered him. Um, it, it, they went into the address and he was stood in the bath, I believe, with a rucksack on That's his correct, back. Yeah. And, uh, and it was tasered. Um, and many people suggested that he should have been act- he actually should have been shot, you know. Um, so it, it's a weird one, isn't it? So I had this conversation just last week with some <laughs> some some ex colleagues, you know, about the whole what happened afterwards side of thing. And I, I, th- I believe his bag was thrown out the window, and you know there were cops in the garden, and, and it was very messy. But that question of should he have been tasered or not, and it, uh, I have no doubt the previous week's incident would have would have been on his mind when he stepped into that bathroom around his decision making. Yes, uh, yeah. I, mean, as, I don't as, know. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to get him on get at him some on, point, actually, and yeah. uh, just ask him what was going through his head when he's when he's faced with a genuine. In this case, it was a genuine uh, failed suicide bomber who stood with a rucksack, and yeah. and he made that decision that he's going to taser him rather than shoot him. So it's a very odd one, isn't it? But anyway, yeah. so so the the suspects all get scooped up, um, and. Um, what happens from your perspective? So let's let's say we're kind of a week beyond the incident. I mean, I appreciate it. we're not going to go through every week for the, the last no, seven, of seventeen not. years, I mean, obviously. In but... terms of pricing, you know, lot, lots of things have we, we just basically get on with work. Um and well, a couple of things happen. Firstly, myself and my colleague from the carriage are issued uh regulation nine notices of uh, intended prosecution from the ipcc and the professional standards department so we're called into the surveillance headquarters and told that we are now under investigation mm-hmm. um for perverting the course of justice um there was talk of manslaughter for my colleague because of his involvement with john charles and there was a real strange atmosphere because all of a sudden we are no longer witnesses we are um, suspects albeit they didn't relinquish us of any duties firearms driving surveillance they just left us to carry on deploying against terrorist subjects associates whilst having the umbrella of a complaint over us for mm. wrongdoing and it, and it related to statement making they suggested that uh, ourselves the firearms officers had colluded in our evidence to try and fudge over the fact that there was wrongdoing uh around the shooting and in absolute nonsense uh, abs- absolute nonsense I, w- I was absolutely uh outraged when they served those on us uh, to be honest I think I expected it, um, but I was outraged because, you know, we had been open and honest and, you know, been very humble and professional about things. Uh, And and we were slapped with these with these um, complaint forms. And was it just you and your colleague who was on the train or was there other members of the surveillance team who got treated? It was myself and and colleague on the train for uh, that side of things. There were some discrepancies around the debrief and some note writing, which were unfortunate innocent mistakes that were made in the debrief process but were 
turned into something that they weren't. There mm. was a, a, you know, our, our debriefing process wasn't very well led by senior leadership and, um, you know, mistakes were made in the writing up and, and it actually gave some quarters a stick to beat us with because it was an error uh, by an individual who made a completely innocent mistake. Um but yeah, no, there I mean, there's, a, other... there's an interesting. Uh, I mean, I won't go into all the the rights and the wrongs of it because I because I think that's probably people can read about all that stuff in Stockwell One, Stockwell Two report. It's all in there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, um, but I suppose when I read about this controversy about surveillance logs uh, and what was written and what was you know added or changed or whatever, I just thought, well, hold on here, show me. A surveillance log on any complex job that hasn't been changed, altered, or had stuff added to it, because that's the nature of a surveillance debrief: is that you've got sort of X number of people who all see slightly different things, who are in different places at different times, and if any psychologist will tell you that everyone sees and perceives things slightly differently, don't they? Yeah, uh, and uh, you're absolutely right. Huh? No, we don't need to go into it. But the guy that made the mistake is the guy that expressed his views that he wasn't the right guy. So there he is trying to do the right thing, but he's made a pocketbook rules mistake with his handwriting, which, you know, turned into something it, it really shouldn't have become. And because we didn't speak out again, we were keeping our powder dry. People grabbed onto that and thought, here we go again. Surveillance are corrupt. And, you know, it's 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 them that have been the bad ones in this. Mm. And just, simply not the case but in some ways being served the uh the complaint probably did did us a favor because what it meant was that we were entitled to full disclosure around any evidence that was um given out and and it it i mean there, there was obviously files and files over the years of, of documentation and paperwork but um it, it gave us more rights, if you will, mm. as as a um, as a key police witness or a, as a as a, a principal officer, as it was in those days, yeah. in terms of preparing, you know, how we would deal with it from a legal perspective, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's been an issue still to the you know the, the current day. You know, people are being treated as principal officers and key police witnesses in in a terrible way, terrible mm-hmm. way. But um, yeah, it. It did cause a bit of an issue, though, because one of the things that we were asked to go and do as a group, both firearms and surveillance, was a uh, a professional psychology debrief where we were invited to the occupational health headquarters and were asked to all sit in a room with a counsellor. Was that en masse or one? On masse, on masse. And the question was posed, to the room does anyone want to talk about anything bearing in mind what we've been involved in oh, and God. um yeah <laughs> what we've been involved in the different units i think and the fact, no no thanks well you know obviously as well we've just been served notice that our own organization was investigating us and now you want us to sit there and disclose personal intimate things with you about yeah. trauma in front, like of lo- you- in front of loads of other people yeah exactly what could, so what, what, what's not to like about that eh yeah so the tumbleweed obviously flew around the room that that afternoon and, and everyone sat there and it was i think as a result they probably thought we were all all right because no one 
said anything, but we're all coming out of it, you know, in disbelief as, you know, what the hell was that all about? Uh, and, and that's really where the welfare side of it started and, and became a, a bit of a, bit of a cake and ass party, to be honest. Um, yeah. So yeah, we, we went our separate ways and over the weeks and months, um, you know, we, we just got on with it and there was a bit of a, the, the team fractured in many ways because um, I think because of the difference in staff that were in different places at the time when the shooting occurred, people would go into little silos and cliques because of, you know, myself, my colleague and some other close friends that we relied on heavily and, you know, were amazing to us would go and sit and just be together because we felt mm. like we needed comfort from from our colleagues and mm -hmm. even if that's like in a down moment of surveillance we'd go to a cafe and it would yeah. be the same group of people yeah. and there would be those that I, I nearly said disassociate themselves from us that's harsh but the team split and it fractured because and, we and do you think do you think that's because it uh, did it fracture along the lines of the degree to which those individuals were actually involved in the incident in other words did you have a group of individuals who were heavily involved in it who kind of ended up spending a lot of time together or was it or was it not really like that yeah so my colleague and i were you know we were if we weren't on live surveillance we would we would sit and we would we would brainstorm and thrash things out because of what had happened we were able to talk about it now amongst yeah. ourselves there was no legal restrictions between us and, and colleagues and, and you know we'd given all our evidence in paper statement form so we could discuss it mm -hmm. um and we did we, we sat there and we, we the, i would say 85% was about welfare, you know, as in just, just getting by, you know, keeping yeah. our sanity uh, and, and talking about the future, what was going to come in terms of the investigation and things like that. Mm. Uh, and, and, and other people didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to listen to that. Yeah. They weren't involved. They weren't under the same complaints Yeah, and, yeah. and probably saw us as a bit of a, um, a hot potato to keep away from. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I've I, I've seen I've seen similar things to that over the years. So not 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 to any degree that you're talking about, but yeah, I've seen a similar thing where certain individuals are involved in something that is really really messy, and it consumes them. Um, it consumes almost every waking minute. Um, yeah. They think they think about it all the time. They want to talk about it all the time. Uh, other people just either get a bit bored of it. Um, or, or they just find it, yeah, it's strange. So and I think that's exactly how it was, you know, as in for those of us that were downstairs, certainly in close proximity, we, we, wanted, we wanted to keep it fresh in our minds for uh, welfare purposes and not forgetting so that our story remained as true as it should be. Mm. But clearly, you know, people just didn't want to hear it. They were sick of it. I think the Met as an organisation wanted to try and, put it to bed as early as possible because of the negative attention it drew um, mm. and equally you know our colleagues were like yeah, it's, it's not involving us so so we're not interested and oddly uh, we had new members of staff come to the team uh, one had been in, in the control room at the time of the shooting so there was a conflict of interest going on yeah. at that point uh, and and you know on top of it all you've got to stay focused and get on with it yeah, as yeah. well as your private life and everything yeah, else yeah. that's going on. And I, I know certainly for that, 
first, well, not even the first year, for, for a long time afterwards, my colleague and I would have multiple phone call conversations for hours on end, mm. um, just just being there for each other. Yeah. Um, and, and we would also um, meet on occasion with the firearms guys because mm. we were all in a similar position where yeah. Yeah. we felt like everyone had turned their backs on us and we're going to have to see this out on our own with our legal teams. Uh, and I, I know certain people were very, very good to us at that time, close friends. Everyone, people show their true colours, don't they? When, mm. when you're up against it, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we relied heavily on each other and others. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very difficult period because I, I think even our wives probably got really pissed off with it. Yeah, because I was we, we to were... come on to that, really. So um, t- t- just talk about your how it impacted relationships outside work. If, if you're okay to, to talk about that yeah i mean um, at some yeah. points i think i went off the grid you know and i was i was being a bit of a dick at home um being selfish it was all about me and you know you know and and um it it was difficult because years to come it it was it was a challenging thing because you know we're we're Mm. skipping a fair bit out but that's okay because moving on to uh coroner's inquests and health and safety trials and that sort of thing my my wife you know she she knew what she was getting into when she signed up to marry me because i was in the army when i met her and she's been with me all through my career you know the the rock as as we all have that person um we had had one child Mm you'll be like oh my god it is as it as it gets worse he um mm-hmm. we had one child and, and that was fine and then we found out between us that she was pregnant with a second child mm-hmm. but in the meantime she oddly had a stroke uh and we were really confused by that and she ended up having three strokes before we went to the doctors and, and said look we got there's obviously an issue because they they didn't know what it was at first and their advice was whatever you do don't get pregnant and we're like oh it's a bit late for that um and it transpired she had blown a gasket in her heart and was having strokes and you know it it suddenly dawned on me and i've got no evidence to suggest other you know that this is true but i i do believe the the stress that come from this was an adding factor to everything that she was going through because she'd had to i burdened her with it for so long and she'd listened to all of my goings on about it and she's you know sat there well i've been on the phone to my colleague for hours on end going over and over it and through all the process oh god um and i think it just caught up caught up with her and you know she ended up having it was such a bizarre moment the day i gave evidence at the coroner's inquest she was uh my son was born four weeks early because of my wife's heart condition so he was in intensive care because his his lungs packed in she was downstairs having heart surgery and I was given evidence oh at the coroner's God. inquest. Oh and it was such a God. surreal moment because you're thinking, what the bloody hell is going You know, all oh, of this man. for just going to work one day, like you said earlier. Oh, and lo and behold, it's God. all come to this. Cut long story short, everyone's fine. Boy's fine, she's fine. Um, we're still together. Everything's great on oh, that front. But, God. you know, it made me just, you know, what we put our partners through is incredible. Our loved yeah. ones, you know, and... and yeah. Our extended family, it's absolutely yeah. outrageous. I know. Uh, so they deserve much more yeah. respect than, you know, we, we give them or we deserve. 
Oh, bless um, you. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that she made a recovery and that, you know, your kids are are okay and everything. But, you know, I... this is why I've had to come up to this little room up here to do this podcast, because if if I let her get on the mic, she'd be giving it loads. <laughs> well, you and know what? Story, you know what? Really it might, it, You're not it going might, anywhere near up. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be it might be quite interesting to get, <laughs> get the story from her perspective at some point I, i'm sure there are many wives partners husbands that have got plenty of stories to tell out there about yeah and this is what i this is what i say and i say this i said this on my podcast before that you know the the wives husbands boyfriends girlfriends mothers fathers brothers sisters of of police officers or people who've worked in emergency services for a long time you know i'm not talking about coming in and doing a couple of years and then buggering off you know i'm talking about who's who've made a proper go of it um and have done a full career or a big chunk of time they they deserve the bloody medals really yeah 100 Um, because we we go out and we do it and knowing perfectly well what we've signed up to do um but they end up picking up the emotional pieces don't they very often of uh, very much you can put on a brave face you know and for me you know, I put on a brave face when I was at work, um, but when I'd come home and I'd just go to pieces very often, uh, I would be drinking too much. I would, you know, I, I don't mind. Admit, I've said I've made very clear in my podcast, my, my book, that, you know, I've suffered periodically from very severe anxiety, you know, to the point where I would literally be bent over, retching into the hard shoulder on my way into work, you know. Um, not good, not good at all, you know. But, yeah. But but yeah, you go to work. You put your you put your work face on, and you just get on with it, don't you? Yeah. And I'll, if you if you're happy, I'll talk about that in a moment. The um to to bring us back, I, I jumped ahead with the coroners. Obviously, there was a health and safety trial against the Metropolitan Police first, um, and that that again caused some issues because the full evidence didn't come out of the health and safety trial because it was it was a, a trial for specific reasons rather than the coroner's inquest um but interestingly after the health and safety trial where the met were found guilty um and subsequently fined etc and, and it went off through the, the court process um myself colleagues had given evidence at that trial against our own organization in effect which again made it a very difficult position to be in mm. but worse for us was the fact that soon after the health and safety trial there was a, a television documentary made about the incident. Mm. And because I would say only 60% of the people involved gave evidence, they created this docudrama without the full picture. Yeah, yeah. And it portrayed a really bad reflection of what had actually happened. Mm. But like what we were saying earlier about, you know, people joining the police and, and not knowing what they're getting into and how they are, prepped for it 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 became the truth about what happened because that's what the media had reported Mm. and up until this point you know we're still keeping our powder dry we're still not disclosing our full version of events because that's coming at the coroners when that day comes but in the meantime we had a documentary outlining all these errors making the public see and ultimately believe that these things had happened and it was mm. it was factually incorrect mm. and it was really hard devastating to sit there and observe that and, and our 
colleagues and family and you know everyone else we knew yeah i, I didn't realize that. that i didn't realize that it happened i mean i know that um you know the the media are bound by the laws of subjudice but i i mean i'm no i'm no expert on the rules of the coroner's court uh, as opposed to the criminal court because obviously as you know in a criminal trial if you were if you were to do that you'd be held in breach of you know contempt of court and you'd be breaching all sorts of rules around subjudice yeah they um, made but, their documentary based on what they'd heard in the evidence for the health and safety rather than you know individuals accounts and it, yeah. it was it was i mean it wasn't funny so it's not a comedy but it it was it was flawed it was you know like i said factually incorrect mm. um and and it made it life difficult at work because everyone took that to be what happened so if you know you hear people talking about it in the street or if someone i knew had found out that i was involved they would have an opinion based on what they'd seen on the telly or read in the press. Mm, and it became yeah. really difficult over the years to, to keep that within. Yeah, and that's yeah, where, yeah. you know, at the, at the coroner's inquest, I think we all felt some relief that we would be able to tell our story um, right or wrong, you know, honest, true, open. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what happened. And, you know, it, it was difficult because it was all done under anonymity uh, to protect us from, you know, the threat level, as it was, we were all given pseudonyms and, and code names. Uh, and, and we told our story in, in some sort of chronological order. Mm. And obviously the coroner and those present came to their conclusion and, and lots of recommendations subsequently came out of it. Um, and, you know, that's that's all documented in, in history now. Yeah, and it yeah. And it felt good. It felt good. To, and it's my to speak it's my under, it's my understanding that that the the surveillance officers were highly commended. Isn't that correct? And in, in, in so much as you know, for your kind of bravery, and it was it wasn't there was no to my to my knowledge there was no criticism of the surveillance officers, i.e., you and your no. When on the when you take yeah, when you take into account honest held belief, you know what you were thinking and feeling emotionally, mentally, physically at that time. It was it was suggested and commented on that officers had done what they believed to be the right thing. There were lots of challenges against that, um, but you know it's it's very easy to sit there in a court and and say, you know, that they haven't done that, but. In the time on the ground where it happened, yeah, clearly um, people had, as I've said on many occasions, done the best they could in the circumstances. Um, I, d I don't know so much about the bravery comments. It's like in in other environments, you'll probably be looking at some sort of commendation for certain officers, uh, certainly my colleague stepping forward and, you know, dealing with who he believed is a potential suicide bomber about to commit mass murder. You've got firearms officers stepping forward into danger, others in and around it, you know, but, but it would be very wrong to even consider that. You know, there were never any commendations and, and rightly so in our opinion, mm. because, you know, this is an innocent man who's, who's yeah, been yeah. shot and killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, you're absolutely But right. it's yeah, often been said that, you know, this, this whole thing about, stepping forward into danger and you know about courage is 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 basically moving forward when there's a means of escape and all this kind of thing and it's it's a mm. very difficult one to get the balance right um and yeah uh it's never been progressed there was talk yeah. about it at a senior level and we were yeah. very much like yeah. no we, we don't yeah. we don't want to be discussing that kind of yeah. thing
And I'm con I'm very conscious as well that I haven't really sort of paid tribute maybe to the firearms officers uh, themselves because whilst uh, the outcome was obviously catastrophic, they too were acting uh, in the honest held belief that they were dealing with someone who was a potential massive risk to the public and to themselves as well. But very um, much so. And I, I hope they don't mind me speaking, you know, not on their behalf, but about them in so much that, you know, these these guys are very professional. They are the top of their game. You know, they 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 do this work knowing the potential outcomes and, and it's not taken lightly. Um, and the guy is involved, very humble, very professional and very self-reflective about what has happened. And, and mm. you know, again, this, there's no glorification of, of anything that we're discussing yeah, or yeah. we have discussed over the years. And, and, and is there remorse? I, I've no doubt there is. But, um, you know, it was their belief at the time that they were doing the right thing and justified based on everything they knew at the time. And, and mm, mm. Where, where can you go with that? You know, it's, yeah, it, yeah. it's terribly tragic for them and their families. You know, it's, um, it's, it's a real difficult one to, yeah. to live with. Well, in an earlier uh, episode of the podcast, I interviewed Tony Long, who was the farms officer who, uh, who, mm -hmm. shot, de who shot dead uh, two uh uh, two bank robbers, I think, believe they were bank robbers, um, you know, literally uh, in the act, you know, carrying weapons in the act. And and then he went on later on in his career to shoot dead uh, Azel Rodney in the course of a pre-planned farms operation. And, and uh, yeah, I, I know with 100% certainty that there isn't a single farms officer who shoots someone in the course of his or her duty who gains any even remotest satisfaction out of that it's just a because they know what a massive issue that is and how their life will probably never be the same again from that moment on yeah uh, rightly so um if yeah can, so, so can we just talk well, a bit about how this sort of affected you um because uh, can i just clarify uh the status once you've been through all of those giving evidence at the various sort of uh legal processes what what was the status of your uh investigation into you and your colleague as you said earlier on that you were being treated kind of as a suspect for effectively kind of cooking something up behind the scenes i mean what what was happening with all that was that done and yeah, dusted um we, we were interviewed under caution by the IPCC in the presence of our solicitor. Uh, we, we gave statements whilst under interview uh, and subsequently all allegations were, were dropped. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when they realised you know, how, how um, open and honest we were and had been and subsequently at the coroner's, uh, rightly so, they, they put all that aside and... Um, Clearly, it left a, a bitter taste mm. in terms of how we felt about the organisation in, in the short to long term, short to mid term, rather, uh, and just disappointed. Mm. But, you know, looking, looking back and self-reflecting, I understand why they did it. And, and mm. Mm. I, get, I get that. It's not just about the organisation. It's the public and everything else you have to take into consideration. Yeah. So I'm not happy about it. Don't get me wrong. It caused a lot of pain. And I know it did for my colleague, but it, mm. um, it, it went nowhere, and rightly so. And it, mm. it probably should never have even 
started. Yeah. Uh, so that was that. Um, and what sort of time, just to get time stamp this again, what roughly how long we talk about? Let's say so. So coroner's inquest out of the way. Health and safety trials have been concluded with the finding of guilt against the Metropolitan Police. Um, where are we now, sort of roughly in terms of time, given that the incident was in July two thousand five? Well, date date was you put me under pressure there because I'm absolutely useless with dates. <sighs> Um, a couple of years to yeah we're talking a few years down the line a okay years, that's fine no, a couple of years no, down the line yeah. okay that's fine no i wasn't i wasn't looking yeah. for an exact month or whatever just roughly no and know. and you know people come and go during that time the team changed significantly um my colleague had been on the on the carriage uh had a direction change in his career uh, moved elsewhere that the, the actual I, I had gone a different career path and, and did something else. Still within the surveillance world, both of us, but um, yeah, different yeah. different skill sets. The department that we were working for, SO12, as you well know, was was um, rebranded mm. and amalgamated with the crime surveillance teams mm. uh, and, and went through a couple of different changes, SO15, SCO35, SCO11, all, all of these changes, all, all rebranding mm. and the teams mixed and the training mixed with firearms and you know we were we were working towards ipcc recommendations yeah. and some of the failings that had taken place and you know that the the met had moved on i think and um yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly at leadership level it, it had moved on mm. uh, that that wasn't to say that the the operators had yeah, yeah. and um in some ways were, were left behind yeah so let's talk about that then uh impact on you in this sort of so we've talked about the very immediate and sort of impact in terms of and then the stress of finding yourself <clears> under investigation and, you know, the impact that had on your team in terms of being quite divisive on the team. And so what from a purely personal level, how, how did this all impact on you over time? Well, I, I knew I, I knew I wasn't right. I knew that there was something going on um, with me in terms of my well-being and I'm a bit paranoid about my health and stuff anyway. And those that know me will know I'm a bit of a hypochondriac around that. But I, I was having a bit of a tough time and I began, it probably started very quickly, but maybe dismissed it, began having nightmares. And there was an element of uh, trauma that was still with me. And, and quite often I would have low moments where I would vent that by being trying to be overly funny or being a comedian, messing about, being silly, um, when really I was struggling internally with how I felt. And, I, you know, mm. it, it wasn't great. And you're looking constantly for ways of deflecting that and diverting it and, and, and giving the impression that things were okay because ultimately you're a husband and father you need to be fulfilling that role yeah. you're a police officer with roles and responsibilities you know as a serving cop that there are going to be issues if you display signs of mental illness or non-well-being mm. in terms of you may lose your firearms license you may not be able to drive you may not be on full duties uh, I didn't trust the job anyway because of the previous years' investigations and all the untruths that have been said. 
and not defending us and all that kind of thing. You didn't really, did you, you didn't feel that you'd sort of anywhere to go take that to? Well, it's, um, it's the trust issue, isn't it? You know, and it's, it's where, where do you, where do you um, have that outlet for yeah. being able to talk? So I, you know, I, I recognised in myself that, you know, it wasn't right. So I went to speak to my GP and said, look, I, you know, I, I disclosed that I've been involved in that incident. Um, and he was like, well, you know, Christ, of course you're going to have some sort of, you know, issues there. Who wouldn't? You know, people have uh, ongoing stuff for a whole host of reasons. So when you look at the scale and severity of, of that incident, it's no wonder. So I explained the symptoms I was having. I was irritable, uh, sometimes lack of concentration, nightmares, lack of sleep, you know, all this kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, he, he put me in touch with uh, an organisation through the NHS that were looking at counselling those that have been involved in 7-7 as members of the public and witnesses. Right. And it was outside the Met. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'll go along. And, and I, I did. I went along and had a series of counselling sessions where we talked about lots of things, you know, mm. pre, pre-police as well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was good. It, it, it felt good. And mm. um, it, it, it helped me mm. from where I was at that particular time. Do you mind um, asking, did your wife know you were, you were doing all of that? Yes, she did, yeah. yeah. We, we've always had that open, uh, you know, honest, transparent discussion around that kind of thing. I mean, bearing in mind what happened to her with her heart problems and everything else mm. you know when you when you look at us both probably as individuals you'd say christ it's a miracle firstly you're still together and secondly yeah. you know how would it not be normal for you to not have some skeletons in your closet you know in, in terms of trauma and wealth welfare yeah, um yeah. and running alongside that you know post coroners um, the IP, one of the IPCC recommendations was that those that were involved in the the, the real intricacies of what happened should be asked or offered to help with the learning process. Mm. So my colleague and I discussed it at length, you know, about what we wanted to do about that. Do we want to do anything? And so we wrote to the coroner to ask permission if we could start delivering this presentation. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about changing the story or you know rewriting history. It was purely about getting our incident and our involvement out there so that we could do all we could to negate it happening again. Mm-hmm. And primarily it was designed for our fellow surveillance colleagues. We didn't want them to have to go through some of the things we had uh, and, and not be aware of some of the, the failings that we had had as a collective. Um, and I gained permission from the coroner to do that. It was supported by the coroner. It was then supported by the MPS. And we then began to deliver that mm. presentation about, you know, warts and all what happened. And that became very cathartic for me to be able to go over it. And, you know, it. So who, who were the audience for this, for this presentation? Is it law enforcement? Well, we, we wanted to make it, I mean, this wasn't um, for gory interest sake this was no, no. about learning and development so we yeah. we made it our wish that it would be law enforcement agencies from whatever world or let's let's say vetted audiences right. rather than you know uh, anything underhand mm-hmm. um so so we did that we we delivered the presentation and, and it was very well received our open honest reflective account of what happened the firearms guys do a 
very similar thing and we have worked together on various projects as well um and i, I found it really helpful um mm. but unfortunately it didn't stay that way mm. the um the mps started to take a bit of a dim view on it and to me it felt like we were being asked to stop doing it because um they thought it was a bit of a jolly because we were traveling and and doing it almost like a road show on occasion with excellent feedback all around the country um but um i think the organization felt like it was time to put it all to bed Mm. get whatever was left and get it under that carpet and put it away forever because it was a stain on the history of the met you know Mm. and and yeah i completely get that the unit have been disbanded and rebranded and all of that thing yeah the operatives have been sent to different not sent they had moved on to other jobs and roles and people have put it behind them yeah but but what they didn't account for was the personal journey that certainly i was on in terms of wanting to become well again yeah my my primary way of doing that was by Mm. delivering the presentation yeah 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 and yeah. and equally my colleague you know and, and and i think um we we could have benefited more from having counseling to a better degree you know I, yes i did my bit but because the organization really never supported us in terms of you know what happened afterwards whether that be the trial the coroner's the welfare Mm. Uh, I don't think we ever really got through that trauma element mm. in a way that we could have done. And and it, mm. we always think back and, you know, it wasn't necessarily just the incident that caused the trauma. A large mm. part of the trauma was the way that we were dealt with by the organization. Mm. And that's really difficult to sit here and admit because I love that organization. It's, mm. you know, it's the best in the world. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it felt at times that we were let down. And it's really hard for me to say that because, don't get me wrong, I've had some amazing times in the, in the police, mm. a fantastic career when I look back over it, you know, when it comes to finishing and mm. I look back, it's, it's been amazing. But there was a huge chunk where we were cut loose and mm. we, were, we were cut, you know, let, 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 left out to dry. Is that the phrase? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think I think I've seen it. I've seen it again and again, Adrian. And I'm sorry to have to say is that, and I'm trying to. I'm going to put. I'm going to try and put my most balanced head on when I say all of this. Um, you've got an organisation there that is operating in the most conflict-ridden environment imaginable. That is delivering a 24-7-365 service to keep people safe. Um, Within that organization, you've got many thousands of people who are wonderful people and good human beings. And you've also got people there who who are not very nice people and got some great managers and you've got some terrible managers. Um, and, and you've also you've also got a situation where they are legally liable for every bad thing that happens on a day-to-day basis. So I can see how 
it can very quickly or easily on an incident like this i'm not saying this is the case I'm, i don't want to i don't want to you know appreciate there's no one here from from the mps to, to to kind of argue back but i could see how someone like this just becomes they just want it to go away they just want to forget all about it because it's just a massive as I say, it was a very dark day for policing, wasn't it? Very yeah, dark I, day. I, I completely agree. And, and I, well, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think um, it got to that point where the MPS needed to move on. Mm. Uh, and, and I completely understand that. And rightly so, because it was, it, I mean, by this stage, it had gone through the European court and we we're 10 years down the line and things are finally getting put to bed forever. You know, this, it has run its course and it has finished. But in some ways, the personal element hadn't. And it felt mm. like, I think, I think from an early onset, this, this whole presentation thing, it was, it was more about want, not wanting to right or wrong, but it was wanting to, you know, uh, promote professionalism and, and do all that, as well as uh, be true to myself and tell the story and do right. I, I don't want this to sound naff, but do right by the innocent man who was shot and 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 tell it as it was yeah, and yeah. develop the learning from it. Mm. Um, so you have got the two almost conflicting sides of it. it's closure time. For me, it wasn't. And, it'll, and never I, be, it'll never be closure time. Well, I, I, it, I mean, not, not, I complete, I not completely. Will will be. But I, I also knew that I was, I was a bit of a, a bugger with it you know I, I knew how to push the buttons of certain managers and, and annoy the crap out of them um by being that bloke that just won't fuck off you know you know i'm <laughs> nagging i want I'm, to do it i want to do it I, no i don't I mean and yeah. but i suffered as a result of it the consequences yeah 50 percent for my own doing because i was yeah. like a dog with a bone with this thing yeah. um how i've managed to have a successful career in a specialist role doing something else where I've, you know, been the national lead and stuff like that on it. I don't know how I've managed to get that balance, but it's worked. Now, ultimately I ended up saying, right, we won't do it. I'll do it in my own time. And I used to take days off annual leave to go and deliver the presentation because that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and we came to an agreement about that and it, and it's kind of all worked out. Okay. Mm. Um, but in terms of the trauma, you know, it's, I think again, it's it's. There's always going to be something there. Yeah. Um, you're always going to carry it with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, th silly little things will happen. I used to have to get out of the transport system and go to my job at Stockwell. So every mm. day I would walk past John Charles's memorial, mm. and I was walking up the same escalator that we went down and coming through the same ticket barrier, mm. and it was an expected thing for me to do. And mm. I, I found that really difficult. Of course, that's going to, that's horrendous to have to do that yeah. every day you're going to work. So, you know, it's, um, it's things like that and you just can't shake it off. You know, there'll be something else, an anniversary or something. And it's, again, it's, it's, um, it's yeah. partly, is it about me? Is it yeah. about him? It's, it's a very difficult situation. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to be really, I'm going to sound like a real wanker now, but I'm going to put my chaplaincy head on now for a moment. And all I'd say is, <laughs> Um, you know, as, as you, you know, work as a hospice chaplain, and I, but um, I would say to that that these things um, that people experience that are absolutely dreadful, um, 
and other people experience other dreadful things. It might be the discovery of terrible um, betrayal in their relationship. It could be uh, terrible um, ill health, the death of a child, all sorts of multiple things that can really, really screw you up. Um, and I do think there's something there about um, you, you'll never be able to um, you'll never be able to turn the clock back and undo that trauma. But but what I do see again and again is people using deeply traumatic experiences that they've had in their lives and turning them into unbelievably um, useful. I'm not going to use the word positive because I don't think there's anything positive about some of these things, but um, using them in a very sort of helpful way for them in terms of being very often it can turn people, I think, into much better people because they are more aware of their own um, weakness and fallibility. And we're all very fragile creatures, every single one of us. Anyone, anyone who doesn't think that, then, well, I'll tell you what, um, you know, it's going to come to you at some point. So I do think I, th I do think we can all use trauma in a in a positive way. If that does that make sense? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, you know, other friends, family that have gone through other instances. You you know, you mentioned it's um, it's it's a different world we live in now in terms of trauma and acceptance and everything else that comes with it. And and you do you end up channeling it in a positive way, uh, and you know good will come out of this bad incident there's no mm. getting away from that and and it has done already but um I, th I think we're all at that point where you know closures upon us mm. um and and so rightfully so i think mm. uh, but it's it's been one hell of a journey now if you were to ask me would i have wanted to not be involved i would probably say no because um it's taken my life on a on a direction that i'd never expected it to have done so a lot has been positive around that and and yeah i can use the word positive in that respect because it's 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 opened things up to me uh both career and personal life that yeah have have been completely unexpected um so in in some ways it's a weird one because i would not have wanted to have not been there uh and certainly with the people around me um so it's, it's 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 all about balance isn't it and, yeah definitely. Uh, so, so where um you're not in the police anymore are you no i retired uh some months ago um and instantly well I, you know like many i was very concerned coming to the last stage thing am i doing the right thing am i not and you know uh, i love what i do in terms of the job i had at that particular time when i finished um and it, and it becomes very nervous, but I took the, the plunge and thought, yeah, I've done my bit. Uh, we'll, we'll take the cash and we'll run and, and see where it takes us. And, and as soon as I did it, I, I felt a huge amount of relief and uh -huh. stress come off. And I know many people yeah. are in the same boat. And yeah, I did as I, well. Yeah, I've not, I've not looked back. I've, I've not had any moments of, damn, I wish I was still in or considering going back in. I've got... Um, several fingers in several pies and have got some things planned and uh life's good you know I, I, my kids are healthy my wife's um still letting me uh sleep in the same bed as her <laughs> occasionally 
<laughs> and you know li- life's good um and it in many ways that's that's down to this journey that i've been on with you know her support throughout and the wider family support throughout all of this uh you know i'm, I'm doing the thank you list now but you know the friends both mm. in and out of the job that were there when we needed it both for me and my colleague uh, and they all know who they are mm. um and you know even the same goes for the firearms teams and all the support from them um it's it's been an amazing journey but we still have to remember all said and done you know the mm. the, the sympathy to the family and, and all yeah. this and uh I know. I know. no matter what i go through trauma wise or whatever it's not gonna change that fact no 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 you're absolutely right and um no, um, and I know from, you know, I've, I've had conversations with your, who, the person who we keep on referring to as your colleague, who, yeah. as, as I say, is a mate of mine. And, um, you know, all interestingly, uh, whilst we've talked about it in sort of, um, to some extent, nothing as detailed as, you know, this conversation, these two conversations I've had with you. And, um, yeah, I keep on threatening to take him fishing at some point and show him how to catch trout because uh, yeah, I like that. He's, he's not very good at it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, top 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 guy, and um, yeah, it's he he would hopefully give a very similar account to the one that I've given um, and be as open and honest uh, because that is his style. Um, yeah. But for you know, for me, I'm, I'm grateful to you for letting me have these two sessions uh, even Adrian, in itself it's been quite cathartic so good. thanks for that it uh i don't know what you know it's um sometimes in life you have conversations with people and um they will remain with you for the rest of your life um and uh, i know without any shadow of a doubt that um this has been massively um a good thing um to talk to 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 have spent this time talking to you um i find it fascinating deeply moving grueling um certainly the first the first uh part one was grueling um but um all i can say to you is i think i think you should hold your head very very high um feel very proud of what you achieved during the course of your career you very much deserve uh, if anyone deserves to feel that pressure that tension being taken away now it's you and people like you who are in that situation um but but overriding all of this i think is the memory of jean charles de menezes who lost his life and nothing can ever bring him back very tragically so thank you ever so much for for your time and uh your honesty and um yeah it's been it's been amazing mate. it's been amazing thank you very much i'm very grateful all the best thank you well i'll i'll stop uh, the meeting but i'll have a little chat with you in a minute all cheers right. bye so there you go what a fascinating account that was and um yeah, very brave of Adrian to talk in that way. I hope that it helped him in some way, and I hope that by listening to it, it will help you understand the unbelievable difficulties that 
police officers have to deal with every single day pretty much that they go out to work and make these difficult decisions and end up finding themselves in these very chaotic situations and then they have to go home get on with their lives as husbands fathers wives girlfriends and then to add insult to injury you get um very incorrect and misleading headlines uh written in newspapers and on television and in documentaries talking about people talking about things that they were not involved and they don't understand and uh it it's really very very frustrating um and then they have to go back out to work again the next day and do it all over again um and then when you when you overlay all of that trauma and chaos with the fact that the organization was pretty much destroyed by this current government back in 2010 you know they're still going out there they're still i'm not saying that the whole of the uk police services has been completely destroyed but compared to what it was it's a very very poor reflection of what it was uh before uh theresa may and david cameron took a, an axe to the organization and as i've i've made this point again and again in my book and in my podcast we now have the lowest rate of um crime detection and outcomes in in history and um, we have an organization that is hemorrhaging staff because it's demoralized and there's dreadful rates of mental health and suicide um so part of my you know reason for doing all of this is to try and help people understand what impact doing this job has on human beings police officers are human beings are just like everybody else walking around the street the difference is that they've made a decision that they want to serve the public that they want to catch bad people and stop them from doing bad things and i think that they deserve so much more than they've been given by this government uh not just in terms of pay and conditions but they deserve so much more recognition for all the amazing work that they do on a day-to-day -day basis rather than this continual criticism and mean-spirited misrepresentation of what they do. If you enjoyed my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could go on Apple Podcasts, if you use Apple, and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it, what you'd like to see more of, or what you'd like to see less of. If you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website, which is www tjf book or one word tjfbook.com um, and i promise you i'll reply to you and finally if you want to join the tangle juliet foxtrot facebook site you will find it funnily enough on facebook 
Thanks ever so much. Bye.